when an industry hears that investigative journalist Gerald Posner is on the case, they hunker down, take hammers to their hard drives, and crank up the paper shredders. But that can't stop him from getting to a fair picture of the truth. We'll share the high points of the pharmaceutical industry's transformational successes, as well as the moments they'd prefer to keep buried next. Is there a danger hiding in your home? Unused opioid medicines could harm your family. Find your unused opioid pills, patches, or syrups and learn how to dispose of them safely at fda.gov slash drug disposal. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back so we can meet the scientists whose breakthroughs and ideas have improved the lives of every human being on Earth, as well as most of our domesticated animals. Laboratory breakthroughs have given us the polo vaccine and antibiotics. They've eradicated smallpox and done everything from treating cancer and diabetes to preventing the rejection of transplanted organs. But there have been costly lies and sinister behavior too, as well as infamous moments like thalidomide. In those dark times, some in the industry lost sight of their noble mission to first do no harm. In the face of massive piles of corrupting cash and compliant congresses that are more lapdogs than watchdogs. Our guide on this journey is intrepid, best-selling author Gerald Posner, who brings us Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. It's a pretty hard-hitting title, and it may seem shocking to you. Well, it surprised him as well. He originally pitched the book under the name A History of the American Pharmaceutical Industry. Pretty straightforward, right? But the facts he uncovered rewrote the title and they'll rewrite the way you look at one of science's greatest success stories. When Gerald Posner first emailed me about pharma, we kicked around how my road not taken as a veterinary pharmaceutical salesman might be an angle that would enable us to discuss this beyond the usual interviewer who didn't have a science background. I enrolled in Rutgers University's animal science program, hoping to follow in the footsteps of scientists who made our lives and the lives of animals better and longer. It was really a lifelong dream for me, and eventually I did work for many years as a veterinary technician. I never got too much into the research side, but I did swing my fair share of pipettes. I love to learn things I didn't know before, and you can do that in science, just as you do in books like Pharma. And if you know more, you're able to make smarter decisions whether it's at home, at school, or in a doctor's office. I guess I had an idealistic view back then, like most young people. So imagine my shock upon learning the stunning facts in pharma. For example, today everybody listening out there in America is more likely to die from an accidental opioid overdose than from a car accident. How did we get to this point? Didn't we solve this way back when we stopped selling things like cocaine and opioids over the counter? When we had the FDA and other organizations that are supposed to look out for us? That's part of the story of pharma. How in a way, 
we're exactly where we were a hundred years ago. Gerald Posner is always such an informative guest. He previously appeared on the History Author Show to discuss his 2015 expose, God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. We also welcome the woman Pharma is dedicated to, Gerald Posner's wife and research partner, Patricia. Patricia Posner shared her excellent chilling biography, The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, The Untold Story. Both conversations are available in our archives wherever you're listening now, on our YouTube channel, or for streaming at historyauthor.com. Gerald Posner is a distinguished attorney, Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude graduate of the University of California at Berkeley and an honors graduate of Hastings Law School. He's written definitive books on everything from the Nazi Angel of Death, Joseph Bengala, the Oklahoma City bombing and Motown, to the JFK and Martin Luther King assassinations. Visit Posner.com for more on today's guest and follow him on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where you'll get a constant stream of great journalism. That last name is spelled P-O-S-N-E-R. Okay, now that we've piqued your interest about the secrets lurking in the medicine cabinet, let's join Gerald Posner and discuss the hidden and heroic history of pharma. I'm joined via Skype by Gerald Posner, author of Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Uh, It is uh, wonderful to be back with you, Dean, on the History Author Show, one of my favorite conversations I've ever had, and my wife, also an author, Tricia Posner, we really enjoy talking to you. Thank you for having me. Well, that's overwhelming, and I was just saying to you before we started to record that I had to consciously remind myself not to keep saying wow when we were talking, because reading this book, reading Pharma, I was saying wow all the time, and not always in a good way. In fact, probably rarely in a good way, just seeing how the machinations are inside these companies and how we end up with something like Prozac or something like OxyContin being a household word now. So I thank you very much for your kindness there. That's certainly making me feel wow. And I'll tell you, when I get one of your books or when I got Trisha's book across my desk, I want to dive right into it. So I brought it home with me, and it's been sitting here on my shelf. For you and Tricia, you said you could never imagine a time that you'd publish a book only to have all the bookstores and author tours shut down. So that's part of the story of Pharma now. In addition to that, this isn't just a novel or a book, say, on the Civil War. The very industry you examine in Pharma is the one the whole world is looking to right now for vaccines and treatments. It's the ones that governments are pouring billions of dollars into. The U.S., I think it was, what, $8.3 billion that, that Congress lavished on them. Hey, hurry up, make this disease go away. They're supposed to be the guys and gals in the white hats in the pharmaceutical companies right now when we're fighting this pandemic. So how has that impacted the public and press interest in your book, Pharma? I think it's had a definite impact in the sense that for people who are looking at it from the outside, from casual readers and that, they say, my goodness, what fantastic timing. 
you came out with a book on the pharmaceutical industry with the second to last chapter titled The Coming Pandemic. <laughs> you end that chapter with a, a interview with an infectious disease expert, Dr. Karen Bush, who's been in the business for 40 years with different drug companies and now teaches. And she ends it by saying, you know, the coming pandemic, this is in, four years ago. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Now, Trisha and I finished that interview in 2016. We put it into the book and we looked at each other and said, well, that's not something that's going to be happening in our lifetime because it's like the, the big one in California for the earthquake. I grew up in San Francisco. We were always told there would be a big one. We know that's true. One day there will be an eight or nine on the Richter scale and it caused tremendous damage. But you don't go about your daily life thinking it's going to happen tomorrow. You're sort of off in the future somewhere. So we published Pharma on March 10th. The next day, the World Health Organization called it a pandemic on COVID, and it changed everything. So it made it topical for the issue of COVID and what was happening for vaccines and how the pharmaceutical industry would respond. No question about that. The downside was that we were selling a book or getting word out of, about a book into a time when all of our tour was canceled, all the cities were canceled, all the events were canceled. So in the old days, you'd go to the Harvard Book School. I was booked for the bookstore there at Harvard. 500 people would show up. You'd have a great talk, and then some people would buy the book. You would talk to them afterwards. There'd be some camaraderie, and there'd be word of mouth. That was canceled. You'd have a virtual event instead. Better to have that than nothing at all, but still people are looking at you on the screen. There's no sense of that feeling of what the book's about. And all the physical bookstores are closed. As you said, you know, Amazon was still selling books, but the physical stores are all closed. So they're not out there with books. It was definitely an unusual time because on the one hand, it's timely. But on the other hand, the means of getting word out about the book was crippled. And the very places that sell the book, for most cases, weren't able to do it. So we were never sure if we were just in a vacuum and talking to ourselves and a few other people or whether it was really having an impact or not. So reviews like the New York Times and others helped to bring attention to it, and we're glad to see those. You have a bunch of very fine reviews. That's one thing people can find when they follow you on various social media. You'll always share a story. And it's notable to me that the things you share aren't just, hey, look, this is this great review my book got. But when you do interviews and when people dig into pharma and are going to do a review on it, there's so much in there that they're almost compelled to put something of real value in those stories and in those reviews that I think that a person who reads it, who maybe can't get to one of those book events, but might've gone, they'll say, that's really interesting. I'm going to pick up this book for more things like that. So that's something unique about your social media because you're always looking into a topic, be it pharma or be it the Vatican's power and money structure in your previous book, God's Bankers. It's always something that's of interest. You don't need to push it. You don't need to be up there. I'm picturing in Chicago, you know, with the hat on and giving him the razzle dazzle. The, the subject matter does that for you. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that. I think that's right, but I underestimated both Trisha and me, underestimate the extent to which Pharma, this book hit a chord with people because the last book about God's bankers, yes, uh, the story of the finances of the Vatican, but a little bit more of a specialized interest area, although people like business and finances or the Catholic Church were there. Trisha's last book on the pharmacists of Auschwitz about history and, and the war and the, and the Holocaust. But in this case with pharma, so many people have taken a pill. So many people have gotten a prescription, have gone to a doctor, have been told about something. 
There are individuals out there, I've heard from families that have trouble affording their medications for their children. They can't pay for their own medications. They're upset from advocacy groups about high drug prices. Others that worry about side effects that haven't been told about a possible pill. People worried about whether we will have a vaccine for COVID that will end the pandemic and bring us back to the old normal or whether the vaccine will take a long time or have side effects or what the, the cost will be. So there is an interest in this in different aspects people seem to be attuned to the issue of the drug industry in a way that I should have realized, but underestimated to some degree. The way people view medication, the way they view antibiotics is so unique in the way that people think about healthcare. And I know that just from my veterinary experience, but also just being a person on the earth. I went to a doctor several years ago. I had a strep throat and he gave me penicillin. And I thought, that's great. It'll do the job, right? There's no need to start off with something heavy like Cipro, which I've also had to take. You know, it hurts your kidneys. It has all kinds of dangerous potential side effects. It may not sound sexy. I know that sometimes people, they want to brag about, oh, well, just that antibiotic. It doesn't sound very sexy. Just penicillin? Like, it's almost a status symbol to go in there and say, hey, I'm taking Cipro. Oh, I'm on all these pills. We've, We've made ourselves think that way as if that somehow is going to save you when the reality is, spoiler alert, that the human mortality rate is close to 100%. (laughs) Everybody is going to die and pills that promise or that we're told will save us if they're taken wrong or abused or taken by people that don't need them in the case of antibiotics, they can hurt you later. They may not be effective. You may build up a tolerance to them. No pharmaceutical rep was ever going to send that doctor that gave me that prescription on an all-expenses-paid trip or on a cruise or send them even a notepad and a pen and a bunch of things with the word penicillin on it because nobody makes any money and recovers any R&D costs and it's not flashy to prescribe penicillin. But he was an old-school doctor. He'd practiced for many, many decades. and He's passed away since, which I, I lamented, in part because he took that minimalist approach. I like the fact that I had a doctor who wasn't going to, as your subheadline calls it, engage in this poisoning of America, that he was going to start from small. And if that didn't help, I'm sure he'd have worked his way up. Pharma, the way that you tell this story, this history of the industry, you really make it clear that you don't have an axe to grind. You went into it with a very simple goal to tell the story of the pharmaceutical industry, tell the story of its history. I mentioned that in the introduction. You had a very basic title for the book. And then you now, because you've written the book, you've brought us along to that realization, to it dawning on us that this is not just people who are just trying to help us get better. They have that realization that, hey, we could sell pills to healthy people. That'll that'll really help us. And as you said, everybody knows somebody on a pill. Right. You know, it's interesting because I'm very, very lucky to have a publisher in Simon & Schuster and the new imprint, Avid Reader Press, who allow me to go out into a new topic about which I know very little other than what I've read just as a consumer of news and information and delve into it in a deep style, a deep dive, as we like to call it, immerse ourselves in it for a few years and then come back from this you know, accumulation of a room full of documents and interviews and files and pull a story out of it. And you're right. It was interesting. You said in the very beginning when we started the interview that there were moments where you would say, wow, as a reader, there were moments we would say, wow, as the researchers and putting it together. There are things time and time again, I would say, well, I had no idea about that. And even you talk about your doctor who gave you penicillin, you know, instead of giving you something fancier as a, a newer antibiotic or that, 
the very first chapter is patient zero. It's about a woman in her 70s in 2016 admitted to a hospital in Reno, Nevada with a bacterial infection that should not have been fatal, but it turns out to be fatal because over the two dozen antibiotics that are used on her, every one that is made and available, none of them worked. It was the first person in American drug history who ever died of so-called antibiotic resistance. The book lays out how sometimes there are unintended consequences that turn out to be bad for us. So after in World War II, when the government had a crash program to get penicillin made, it was the second highest priority as a secret program after the atomic bomb, after the Manhattan Project. 10 drug companies become volunteers essentially in this massive crash effort. And coming out of World War II, they remake the drug industry in terms of penicillin and, and competing new antibiotics being the ones that dominate the decade. They are the drugs of that decade as a practical matter in terms of money makers and the most distributed. So doctors got accustomed to writing antibiotic prescriptions for just about everything. If you had a slight fever, if you had the sniffles, if anything was wrong with you, if you had a scratch, you were worried about an infection. They, and in overwriting, which they were encouraged to do, of course, by the drug companies making them, but they didn't think there was any downside. They didn't realize, because it didn't come out until later, that there was, in fact, a danger. The danger was that they were essentially creating antibiotic resistance. People who take antibiotics when they're not necessary for a number of times, when you finally do have a pathogen that can make you sick, it turns out that you've given antibiotic for it and the pathogen continues to flourish, grow, or, or hurt you because it's now resistant to that antibiotic. And the problem is not just the overprescription, but what you talked about before, Dean, that you weren't given the more expensive, newer version of the antibiotic. And to the extent that antibiotics become resistant, your doctor was smart. They should always give you the oldest possible antibiotic because they want to see if that works first. They should only give you the latest, greatest, and most expensive if you're not responding to anything else because if they give you the latest, greatest, and most expensive right away, people will start to develop. Some people have a natural resistance and you'll get resistance spreading in the community. When your doctor gave you antibiotics, you probably took it for a week, thereabouts. Now, often for Cipro or Z-Pax, it's down to five days and sometimes there's even three. As a result, drug companies in America have largely abandoned antibiotics. In 1980, there were 36 companies involved in making them. That was down to six by 2010 and is now down to zero because they look at antibiotics, they spend a lot of money on creating the drug, and then you go ahead and you get it issued to you by a doctor and you're on it for five days. They come up with a drug instead to treat your high cholesterol or your diabetes or your high blood pressure, they're putting you on a pill that you may stay on for the rest of your life. So they're treating those chronic conditions. They're much steadier and bigger profit makers over the long term than antibiotics. You mentioned the first of the so-called lifestyle drugs, and that was the pill, was contraception, the first pill that people would take not to cure something, but for behavioral reasons. And that's a fascinating part of the book. And if you want to see what real sexism looks like in marketing, gosh, read that part of pharma. But this is the thing, that people start doing something that they don't do before this. And people are taking things in the Gilded Age. For instance, you could walk into a pharmacy during the Gilded Age and you could pick up bottles of opiate-laced laudanum. It was available in as many flavors as today's soft drinks. You could buy heroin there. You could pick up, as you mentioned in pharma, a syringe cocaine combo in the Sears catalog. So order that right off of that era's version of Amazon.com and it shows up at your house and you shoot it up with the syringe. 
it's easy and common to look back with a snicker from a 21st century perspective at that kind of naivete about the dangers and the potency of drugs like opium. But then you start to read pharma about life since Oxycontin comes on the scene in 1996, and you realize there's a lot of similarities between then and now. The difference is, I guess, we don't just walk into the pharmacy. We need that prescription until we get hooked, and then we start trying to get it any which way we can. So talk about that, the comparison between those days before drugs were banned. That's a little over 100 years ago now from our perspective and today. You know, I didn't realize the extent to which, before drugs were banned, sort of the narcotic drugs, it was the Wild West in um, the pharmaceutical trade. I mean, American pharma as we know it really didn't exist until around the time of the Civil War when there was this surge in demand for morphine for battlefield injuries. And that's where you see the Pfizer cousins, two young German cousins, start their company in a, in a Brooklyn chemical plant that becomes eventually a a manufacturing plant for morphine. You see Edward Robinson Squibb, who's a union colonel. Park and Davis uh, were a Detroit health official and investor. Pfizer comes in, Edward Lilly, Eli Lilly. They're all real people, and they formed their companies around that time. And then through 1914, everything's available without a prescription. As you said, you're 18 or older, you can go in. Heroin was a legal brand put out and patented by Bayer. Bayer had, as a matter of fact, their research team was really at the forefront in many ways of drugs during this Gilded Age period. They discovered over a six-year period, first, what would be acetaminophen, we think of as Tylenol. And then a year later, they developed aspirin, which was a wonder drug. Then they came up with heroin named after Hiroche, the German word for heroic. And in 1903, they developed an entire class of drugs, barbiturates, and their branded name was phenobarbital. What the great footnote on that is, there's only one of those four drugs they decided not to bring to market because they thought it was too toxic in their lab tests, and that was acetaminophen. So I love the fact that barbiturates and heroin were fine for distribution, were big sellers, but not Tylenol. (laughs) And although we had a 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, it really regulated the accuracy of the labels. So if you put opium into a baby cough soother, you had to state that and you had to say how much was in there. Before that, you didn't even have to say what the ingredients were. So it's not until 1914 when the Harrison Act comes in and all of the narcotics are banned. And then we go into that great experiment on prohibition and no alcohol because a lot of these potions had alcohol in them. The pharmaceutical company then has to struggle to figure out what they want to do or how they're going to make money. They don't have many products. Get insulin in 1922 in Canada. It comes up. It's wonderful, but it's a one-off. And it's not until penicillin in World War II that the industry's remade. But here we end this story on the opioid crisis. And you're absolutely right. Different than what was taking place when everything was sold without a prescription. But in some ways, morally as as infuriating and aggravating because the drug companies, the manufacturers, the distributors, the pharmacies today, the doctors writing the prescriptions have much more information. They know the extent to which this is an addictive in terms of opioid painkillers, an addictive substance, what the downside is in terms if you take enough, it will suppress the respiratory system and can lead to death with other complications. So there's a criminal element in some ways to this current opioid crisis that although not as unleashed as the one, the turn of the 20th century is in its own way even more infuriating. Especially when you're coming to healthcare professionals 
at your worst. You're not hopefully wandering in there just off the street because you want a pill, although people do do that. And maybe they have what they used to call the blues, and now there's pills marketing to that, which we'll get to in a minute. But to me, when I look at the opioid crisis before I picked up pharma, it's not an even relationship because you go in, a doctor or a nurse in a white coat hands you a pill and says, take it. Now, you're going to take it, especially if you're in pain or you're sick and you don't feel well. And I was mentioning earlier, people demand antibiotics for their pets. They want something special. You know, it sounds like kind of a kick. Well, imagine what they do then for themselves. In fact, when people would come back sometimes and say, oh, I have some antibiotic from last time with Fido, you'd say, gosh, you were supposed to give them the whole thing. Well, people don't take care of themselves, so why would they take care of their pets, right? right. <laughs> why would you think they would treat them any better? And that's something that in the beginning there, I played that PSA about getting rid of your old opiates because people will say, oh, I went to the doctor and I got some pills or other people will ask you and say, oh, did they give you any good drugs? That's right. And I understand it's lighthearted, but it's also really playing with fire and you're better off throwing them out. I'm fortunate that if I take an opioid, I get very nauseous. So it doesn't mm -hmm. give me any kind of euphoria. My mother and my brothers are the same way. And my one brother has severe, severe back pain. He couldn't even for many years bend down to tie his shoes. And he said, you know, I took that first one and it was worse than the pain. That's and right. so I never took it. Yeah, he was very lucky. And thank God I didn't because I would be dead. <laughs> yeah, he's very lucky. And, you know, the interesting thing, and, and, and opioid painkillers are a perfect example. They do serve a legitimate purpose in the sense that they were developed originally. And, you know, I talk about this in the book. I never knew until I got into the details of uh, the pharmaceutical industry that it was an English nurse turned physician uh, Cicely Saunders, who started the modern hospice movement in the 1960s in the UK. And she was looking for a long lasting opioid painkiller for terminal cancer patients in incredible pain near the end of their lives because she knew that the short acting pills of four hours to five hours, you had to dose them around the clock or you had to give somebody an IV. It meant that at the last few weeks of life in cancer, in terrible pain, you were in the hospital or in a hospice itself, you weren't able to go home. She wanted people to be able to go home and spend their time with their families. And the only way that might happen is if you were able to find some type of painkiller that was longer lasting. So it turns out that Purdue Pharma, which marketed the drug that many people have heard about, their blockbuster OxyContin, they had a British subsidiary called Nap Pharmaceuticals. And Nap, years, a decade, more than a decade and a half before anyone ever heard of OxyContin, had come up with a an extended release version of morphine called MS content, and that revolutionized the business. So it was for those end-of-life patients who were going home. Then there was this reevaluation movement that took place in the mid-80s by a group of palliative care doctors at Sloan Kettering and some of the leading hospitals that said two things. Pain is underdiagnosed, which is a very good point because doctors before that used to treat pain as a symptom of some other condition. So if your brother went in and said, I have terrible back pain, they would say, did you fall? Did you hurt yourself? Did you have an accident at work? They'd look for a tumor. They would look for something else. It must be something else causing the pain. These doctors said, no, pain is a condition on its own and pain should be treated as it would be treated for cholesterol or the same as diabetes. It's a, it's a standalone condition. They instituted Pain is one of the five basic signs that would be asked by a doctor every time you went to see a doctor for an exam. They used to check your blood pressure, see what your heart rate was, uh, and now one of the things they ask you is, what's your pain level? What are you on a one to 10 scale? They also, those doctors said, not only is pain underdiagnosed, but opioids are not as addictive as we've come to believe. We've tar and feathered them with a bad reputation. Now, 
It turns out they were wrong, but they came out with that. And it's a terrible mistake. And I talk about it in detail and you'll see how they were later co-opted some of them. But that reevaluation movement, which comes out about a decade before OxyContin is produced in the United States, is the perfect storm. It leads into this manufacturing of drugs and the doctors prescribing them. And, you know, you said before people go in and they tell the doctor what they want. We're one of two countries in the world, together with New Zealand, that allow direct to consumer ads from pharmaceutical companies, even though you can't get a pill unless a doctor writes you the prescription. This is an odd business. Manufacturers are putting out medications and they need to sell them to doctors because it's doctors who write the prescription to the end user, the patients to us. And the doctors often don't know the price of what the prescription costs because they don't know what our copay is on our insurance or they're all different. So it's an odd business. Price is taken out of the equation. They're selling through these middle people and doctors. So why would they advertise to us because they want us going into the doctors and saying, what about this great pill I heard about? They want us to hear from a friend about OxyContin and saying, gee, I have a friend who had a terrible back and they were given this pill and they're able to go back to work or to come in and say, I've heard about a new pill for depression or what about this new thing for, for high blood pressure? They want it to be driven not just by their own marketing to physicians, which is billions of dollars, but also from the billions of dollars they spend on us, the consumers, to push physicians to write the scripts, and it often works. So many things in pharma jump out at you and you realize, I've been living in this world. I've been manipulated and marketed to in ways I didn't even know. For instance, you mentioned that before the relatively recent advertising of these ads with these beautiful, you know, you're running in a park and you're, you don't even know what the drug is for, but you say, hey, I'm out there with my dog and it's a sunny day and it's a beautiful field and I'm running. Give me that pill, you know, and even the colors, you know, I, I vividly can see what penicillin looks like. It's just a simple little yellow, looks almost like a spoiled seed or something. It's not a bright orange pill. It's not a, a bright purple pill, which is what one of the medicines is marketed as, right? The little purple pill or the little yeah. blue pill. We all know about that, thanks to Bob Dole <laughs> promoting that one. But even something as simple as Tylenol you mentioned. Tylenol toxicity, acetaminophen, is the number one cause of acute liver failure in the U.S., I had it one time after I'd had a few drinks the night before, and man, I was on the ground. Certainly couldn't make it to work, but I couldn't even make it to the couch. And ever since then, I'll always tell, especially young people, be really careful if you, you're out on a night and you have a bender and you think you're going to come home and take four or five Tylenol because you're, you, know, you don't want to wake up with a hangover, because it will do a number on your liver. Yeah. That's a simple over-the-counter drug, and you still have to be very careful. Yeah, you know, there's no question about that. One of the things that's interesting is, you know, you realize through this that the FDA, when they're approving drugs, they're looking at that specific drug that's being offered up by the manufacturer for that condition. They're doing clinical trials. They're looking at the safety and the efficacy and how it comes out. But they aren't looking at how that drug interacts with every other drug on the market or even, as you say, with alcohol or other conditions. The test market for that essentially becomes the consumer, the patients who end up taking the drug. And that's why you'll see warnings that keep growing over time. It says not to be used with this, not to be mixed with this. Here's a contraindiction. Because the manufacturer's only worry, does it in fact, let's say, treat cystic fibrosis? Does it treat the symptoms of cholesterol in that? Then you end up finding out that if you also happen to be taking an antidepressant or you're drinking alcohol, that it amplifies the or reduces the effects of the drug. That's the information where we become the human guinea pigs. And I think that one of the things that is interesting here, and there's a stage at which 
in the 1960s and 1970s, drug companies, uh, Cyril, who put out the birth control pill, the first oral contraceptive, and Wyatt that put out hormone replacement therapy uh, drug for women at menopause, they were receiving an increased number of adverse, serious adverse effects, both of endometrial cancer and blood clots for the pill because the estrogen levels were much too high. And in case of hormone replacement therapy, their Premarin, they were receiving uh, reports also about breast cancer and endometrial cancer. Now, they basically didn't do anything with those reports. They kept compiling them in the back of the the company. And they came out in the mid-1970s in congressional investigations to everybody's horror. The point is that there was one stage at which one of the companies talked about whether it was a gateway drug. And what I mean by that is they knew that drugs would cause side effects so that when they do cause side effects, even unknown ones, even serious ones that you don't expect, maybe they could develop drugs in their own company to treat those side effects. It's a bit like Purdue Pharma with OxyContin. It proposed at one point and tried to get off the ground, but it was too late for it to do an antidote to treat opioid overdoses. So, you know, they're creating a drug that kills more people in this prescription drug overdose scourge than died in the American Civil War. And then they're thinking, by the way, ah, it's killing a lot of people. Why don't we come up with something that will help in overdose cases? And this is what companies do time and time again. We've got a cholesterol drug and it's causing your sugar rates to go very high when you test on your annual blood test. So maybe we can come up with something to lower sugar. That's a side effect of our other drug. And that to me always is a remarkable feature of the pharma companies. Especially when then you're talking how many pages and pages of legalese and also of medical terms in those warnings. So if you've seen one of those ads on TV, and we all have now, the airwaves are blanketed with them, you're hearing that man muttering really fast about a bunch of terms. And there's a study on this for traffic signs, but it applies here. If you have too many warnings, people tune them out. For instance, those ads in the newspaper, that's one of the things I was thinking when I said manipulated that I learned here in pharma. The companies say, well, we expect the doctors to tear those ads out of the magazines before they put them out in their waiting room and they have you waiting there for an hour and a half with nothing to read but that medical journal. Well, of course, the doctors aren't going to do that. And if anything, it's going to be somebody like you or I who pulls out this ad of this beautiful, smiling, happy person who says, I used to have the same problem as you, but then I took this pill and now I'm fine and happy and, and everything is good. So these are ways that they really game the system and get around limitations on things like ads and magazines to market things directly to us. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very interesting. You're right. And so, you know, it, what you were pointing out a second ago is before 1997, they approved direct-to-consumer ads only in 97. But you think to yourself, God, I certainly felt as though I was being pitched to drug ads uh, before 97. And you were, but in ways that sort of were through loopholes. So they would put in full insert ads. It was Arthur Sackler, who was sort of the uh, the patriarch of the uh, the Sackler family, the Sackler's own Purdue. But in the 1950s, he revolutionized. He wasn't doing opioids. They didn't exist for the Sacklers, but he was doing advertisement for the drug industry. And he made Valium, the popular mild tranquilizer anti-anxiety pill, the industry's first $100 million drug, and then its first billion-dollar drug. For 15 years for Hoffman LaRoche, that drug was the number one selling drug in America and in the world. It's an unrivaled record. It's never been matched by any other drug in terms of how long it was on top of the drug production list for number one. And in doing that, he's the one that sort of revolutionized the the way that drug industries did advertisements. Before he arrived in the late 50s and started to make a antibiotic the top seller for Pfizer, 
the drug companies used to s- send out those very boring inserts that you talked about a second ago filled with information to doctors, or they would print those inserts inside medical journals like the Journal for the American Medical Association. Sackler said, you're crazy. You should be doing four-color ads, splashy ads. You should be running things in Time magazine, which you said a moment ago. And they said, well, you can't advertise to consumers. He said, no, we'll do it with a perforated edge as a four-color insert. And those go to doctors. We send them as free subscriptions. So doctors will get those magazines. Then they should pull out the insert and put it out in their waiting room at a time when people used to go and sit in the doctor's waiting rooms. Of course, the doctors did get it. They would put the magazine out. They never ripped out the insert, so it worked. Sackler also managed the art of pulling together articles that that would be given then to health writers at magazines. Today, think of blogs and everything else that's available. But back then, it was just in magazines and newspapers. They would give them a prepackaged article that was really straight promotion about some new wonder drug coming up and how it would change the way people dealt with health. It was a way of selling drugs. So the industry's always figured out a way to become more aggressive about that over time. And you're exactly right, Dean, when you say they understand very well, and Sackler's one of those who talked about this, that if you give too much information, that's the problem with doctors often figuring out which version of a pill they should prescribe if the newest and latest is really the best, If you give too much information, people are overwhelmed. They throw up their hands. They don't have time to deal with it. That's definitely the case on the side effects, on the television ads, the radio ads. They run in so many so quickly that people tend to think, you know what? It sounds really good. It can't be that bad or they wouldn't be selling it and they're willing to try it. They don't listen to the details. Absolutely. They think, hey, if the Rolling Stones could write Mother's Little Helper, how bad could the pill be? And I wanted to mention as an aside there, when you talk about putting those magazines in a waiting room, this is before cell phones, everybody. So if you're younger than a certain age, you probably don't remember when you sat there desperate for anything to read because you had no phone, you had no <laughs> nothing like that. You wouldn't bring your tablet with you. Maybe you'd bring a book with you if you were smart, but they really had a captive audience there. And they could have people reading it. And then you'd say to the doctor, hey, I I have this problem. Everybody loves to self-diagnose, especially now with the Internet. Why don't you give me this? Well, what about that? I read this thing about that. And that's exhausting for doctors, too. They're pressed for time. They're trying to pack people in. It's very easy to just say, okay, I'll write you a prescription. And if you don't, the patient will go somewhere else and try to find somebody who will do that for them. Yeah, that's very, very true. And it's interesting when you talk about the impact of the internet, Google, a condition, you're looking for something for a medication. But even in terms of social media, one of the things that the pharmaceutical companies have become very adept at, and you would expect this to be the case, they are one of the most profitable businesses on the planet. The top 10 firms have half a trillion dollars in sales a year. This is a big industry. They have figured out a way to also, fake news is the wrong way to express it because they're not passed off as news stories. But they're very good at putting what I call little vignettes into social media that make it look as though you're reading about somebody's personal story and how a drug has come to their rescue. And it's very much a product placement that isn't passed off as an ad. So many of the patients' advocacy groups, for instance, for diseases, especially for those with small patient populations, you know, I talk about this in a chapter on orphan drugs, most of those patient advocacy groups that have riveting personal stories about a child afflicted with a rare disease that, you know, no one was going to treat until this drug was ready are sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you don't know that, it's interesting. You often can take the information you see on social media or in a story or something on Facebook and think to yourself, as Sackler used to do, put a story out into a a newspaper column that made it sound as though the next miracle drug is coming up. Now it's saturated digitally, both on social media and in terms of the internet. The drug companies are very good at making sure that 
your search on Google will lead you to something that doesn't look necessarily like a straight infotainment ad from that drug company, but still will be a very seductive pitch about the power of a given drug. You're enjoying my conversation with Gerald Posner, author of Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. You can visit him at posner.com and follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for a steady stream of news related to your health and to this book, Pharma. The New York Times says that our guest has exhaustive research techniques, and I can certainly back that up. And yet it's something you can really digest and a book you really will enjoy that he puts together with his wife and research partner, Tricia Posner. The New York Times wrote of this book, Posner weaves an extraordinarily intricate tale of intrigue, corruption, and organized criminality. That organized crime aspect of it, you think of them selling illegal drugs and we make that line in our mind, well, they couldn't possibly have these companies that are marketing them the same way. But another item that jumped out at me from that is a parallel to the past newspapers. Newspapers in the Gilded Age, they made boatloads of cash by selling those patent medicines. People have probably seen those ads that you mentioned for cocaine teething medication for your baby at home. And it just says boldly, has cocaine. And so, of course, that would make Junior very happy and stop crying. He'd be spaced out. And here I am joking about it, even though it's obviously a serious thing. You don't want to be loading children up. You don't want to be loading anyone up with cocaine. And so we look back at that and condescend. But now we're talking about putting those ads on TV and in magazines. And I wonder how much does that calm the appetite or stunt the desire for modern media to look into a story like the ones you tell here in Pharma. You talk about the man who inspired you to do this project, and he says, you could throw a dart at a dartboard on a list of topics about the pharmaceutical industry, and as a journalist, you could make your career out of exposing just that part of it. How has that compromised the appetite for modern media to investigate things like the opioid crisis or Valium, especially since I know from when I was in news, you go to your senior producer and say, people are going to learn something in this. And they say, don't use the word learn, or that's too complicated, or really dumb it down. And, I mean, it's one reason I don't work it anymore. I don't think people are stupid. I'd rather do my own thing here. But uh, how does that affect it? Is it really a, a case of they say, well, we don't want to get that call from the sponsor that tells us why, why you're hitting us so hard? You know, I'm not a big believer in conspiracies, but I do think that in this case, I have found out that it is a factor no one expresses it as directly as that. But look, there are billions of dollars in advertising money that come out from pharma on television, on cable news, on, on programs, on you'll see it in contributions. And I had some pushback from producers, for instance, on cable news that I've gone on programs repeatedly over the years discussing my books. No one says we're not having you on because we happen to be getting Johnson & Johnson as our you know second biggest advertiser. But instead, they'll say things such as, it's not the right time to be talking about drug prices being too high and what pharma has done wrong in the past because we're in a moment of a pandemic and we're hoping that they come up with the cures and the vaccine for dealing with COVID-19. And it will take away the incentive for those working so hard in the laboratories on those new drugs and vaccines. And I think not really. That sounds like a pharma talking point to me. So I've been surprised <laughs> in some ways to get that. I think that in addition what some of the mainstream media has done 
And this is a pattern you will see in the book, which is there are always good reporters out there going ahead and reporting on something in a local area and they're breaking the news and sometimes they'll want a Pulitzer for it. But when it catches the national and it becomes a mainstream story and the topic of front page news, it's often a one subject matter. And what I mean by that is in the 1960s, for instance, when we said before volume uh, was mild tranquilizer, anti-anxiety was number one. In 1975, when there were Senate hearings about the fact that it might be caused dependence, it could be addictive, there could be overdoses, it could be abused. The story changed from Valium being so wonderful and being a happy pill to Valium being dangerous. And when that happened, the media, and I use that in a general sense, but mainstream media jumped on that story and they covered it incessantly for 18 months to two years and then continued to cover it for a five-year period afterwards. It was the dominant story. There are hundreds of stories that take place as cover stories, front page stories, in-depth New York magazine pieces, uh, television specials. And that happens again in the 80s and early 90s. You see it on Xanax, uh, the uh, the benzodiazepines. Again, you'll see it, some of it with the SSRIs. You'll see it on the stimulants like Adderall and that, which became diet center pills, the big side business and pill mills in the 60s and 70s. So what happens is a drug comes out it becomes very popular. People think it's a wonder drug of sorts. It's usually a drug that can also be abused or uh, it can get to the black market and have some secondary use because some people use it for a high or like they do with speed or with uh, the, uh, the opioids. And then over time, people start to see the dangers in it. And when that becomes a subject of congressional investigations and media focus, it creates what I call the opening for the next wonder drug. And that will run a while until then the, the media jumps on top of it. So now it's been a long stretch in which the media's focus has been opioids. And even on 60 Minutes, which has done some fantastic work on this, you'll continue to see opioid stories. Frontline has a new one coming out at the end of June about incest, a company I write about where the, the head of incest went to jail because they had crossed the line so badly. So they don't necessarily want to break news about other parts of the drug industry. They'd rather stay with the, and you get this from your news background, the story that's getting the most eyeballs. And that happens to be always, it seems, one big topic at a time to the exclusion of all the rest of the wrongdoing. Which is always striking to me because we have so many more news outlets, and yet it's still the old thing that they say the hedgehog knows one thing very well, the fox knows many things, and hey, we even have a network called Fox now, and yet still most of those stories are right off the front page of the New York Times, the one, two, three, four stories, and then we just don't have time to get to this today. You know, it is interesting, you know, when you said sort of dumb it down or things like that, you know, and we've all been in situations where you still hear things like that. One of the things that I think works to pharma's benefit. I use this as a broad over generalization, is the fact that some of the issues are complex. So, you know, I have that chapter on orphan drugs, and there are some simple fixes to that, but to have people understand orphan drugs takes a little bit of time. The pharmacy benefit managers, I have a chapter on that, but it seems an arcane sort of, you know, area to get into at first. And I think that that's why, as you said before, the more complicated it is, people tend to throw up their hands. And that's the nature of the problem now with government legislators is there is no simple fix. So as a result, when they think of pushing one part of the balloon in, pharma is very easily able to say, no, if you do that, it's going to bulge out over here. You know, So there's nobody that has the overall uh, fix, without a doubt. 
And when you start questioning them, we have a fetish about experts and degrees and things. And that's easy to abuse that too and say, well, you wouldn't understand. I could explain it to you, but you know, look at, look at these degrees on my wall. You know, somebody's yeah. unscrupulous. That's what they'll do. No. Heck, we do it to kids all the time, right? Well, you don't know. You'll understand when you're older. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> Some true. Some of us never outgrow that. No, that's true. And you know, one of the things that's interesting is, of course, the defense that's worked best for them over time is if you put too many restrictions on us, you cut our profits, uh, you put price controls or whatever, you negotiate prices, it'll cut back on our research and development for all these great drugs. And that would be great if true. But I have this inconvenient statistic, as I say in the book, that for the top 10 drug companies, uh, they're all public companies, so we can get this information. It's not hidden. They spend more in the last decade, on average, every year on promotion and marketing and stock buybacks than they do on research and development. So do a few less stock buybacks and a little less promotion, and you'll be able to put more into research and development. So we're funding all of that, and we don't need to at those profit margins. That's really what it comes down to. Something that you mentioned, the idea of now we're fighting a pandemic, that's thrown up as a smoke bomb there when you start to talk about some of the things the pharmaceutical companies may be doing wrong in their history. You mentioned Harvey Washington Wiley in the book, and he's somebody that's very interesting to meet and a, a complex character, sometimes did put his finger on the scale way back, but starting us on this road to things like the FDA that maybe we've come to count on too much to protect us for what we're putting in our bodies and assume that that means you can take it anytime, anywhere with any other drug and any other alcoholic beverage or whatever it is you'd like to take. But there are wild success stories in the pharmaceutical industries. For instance, there hasn't been a case of polio in North America for over 40 years. Not a domestic case. There was one traveler who came here with it and had it in 93, but that's it. We've eradicated smallpox from the world. And when I say we, I use that pronoun, right? I'm, I'm identifying with it. I'm mm-hmm. you know, saying, oh, humanity, we've done this great thing. Also, then we're saying, well, they are us. The pharmaceutical companies that did these good things are us. And that's the same people today. And it does need to have a nuanced view because there are doctors that are serial killers, right? right. There are people in all places and in all businesses that do – the business does wonderful things. Some of them, their competitors maybe don't or they lose their way. And that's something that I find here, and I'm glad you mentioned it, about going out and talking about pharma may seem like kicking them when we need them. But to me – A book like Pharma is all the more important because we want to encourage success at this moment. We want to keep them on the straight and narrow without letting them say, hey, we cured polio for you. That was wonderful for humanity, getting rid of smallpox. All the the developments we have had are wonderful, but that doesn't mean we overlook the fact that some of these things are legitimate concerns that have been papered over and that have been inflicted on humanity by the people who we're counting on to help us, to bring us the next vaccine for the next pandemic. Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, I I very much saw this book as a book of good and bad, like any other industry. I I don't care if you're talking about uh, the legal profession, you're talking about uh, technology or banks, there are going to be some great and talented innovators, and there are going to be some people that are greedy and break the rules, and that's human nature. And it happens in the pharmaceutical industry as well, and there are some fantastic stories inside the lab and in terms of discoveries, and not only you know with the curing of smallpox and polio, but penicillin is undoubtedly one of the most important 
discoveries in human history. It saves millions of lives a year with the people that used to die from just ordinary infections. It's hard to overstate its importance. So what the drug industry has produced over time, and there are heroes who come in here. You know, there's a chapter titled, Can You Patent the Sun? It's the, the question that was asked by Edward R. Murrow, the famous CBS radio reporter who asked Jonas Salk, the inventor of one of the polio vaccines, who owns this vaccine? Do you own it? Does the drug company manufacturing own it? And he says, could you patent the sun? I mean, nobody owns it. It's, it's public. It's available for anybody to be able to use. Now, that's one of those rare, great formats. A lot of other drug companies don't necessarily agree with that, and they'll stick a patent on it right away, and that's their right. But there are some stories inside here that I think you come up with time and time again. And I thought that the subtitle that was picked by the publisher in the end, you know, the poisoning of America. Yes, I understand that in terms of the opioid crisis in particular, but I've always thought of this as a bit of what's good about pharma and also what's bad. And if you bring it down to its nub and say to me, what's the basic difference? I think in many ways, Dean, what happens in the laboratory from the researchers and the scientists, they really are looking toward coming up with cures and treatments. And they're doing that right now on COVID. Then where the excesses take place is not from them. They aren't the ones going out and telling doctors to prescribe it too much and everything else. It's coming from the promotion and marketing teams who get their directions often from the boardroom to make sure that bottom line is really pushed. And they'll, they'll push it for things for which it wasn't approved by the FDA or for which it's questionable. And they'll have it overprescribed. And one last very important thing. I think that pharma shows you something. We can put the blame even on the bad actions, like on opioids, on the drug manufacturers and producers. But in the end, they can't do it on their own. It's like robbing a bank. You go in to rob the bank and you need a getaway driver or somebody outside to drive you away if you're going to get away. Here, the pharmaceutical company can come up with a drug. They can send out their sales reps. They can over tell the doctors to overprescribe it because for all these conditions for which it's not approved. But then you need the doctors to do that. You need the doctors to write too many prescriptions. You need doctors to run pill mills as they do in which they churn the pills out. You need the distributors, the big multi-billion dollar distributors like Cardinal and American Bergen Health, McKesson, to not report to the government any of the instances in which the drugs are being diverted or distributed to one small pharmacy in the middle of nowhere that would supply an entire state. You need the pharmacy chains themselves and CVS and Walgreens in turning a blind eye or giving bonuses for the number of prescriptions that they fill on different items. So you need the FDA for not being diligent enough on staying on top of it. So there's plenty of blame to go around when you get to the blame part. But I don't want people to lose the perspective that this is an industry that also has changed our life in many respects for the better. It reminds me of a quote I have here that you write and is underlined, I guess, in the original. So you underline it by Arthur Sackler, who's this man that we meet, who brings us OxyContin, who has this view of sort of a shark eyed view of how to market these things. Starts out as a communist. He's an ardent communist. You say he's a member of the Communist Party. Right. And so it seems strange because this seems like the worst caricature or, as you describe it, a stick figure of a man here, the Scrooge McDuck or the Mr. Burns from the Simpsons fellow. But he finds Purdue Pharma and he writes, a drug has no moral or immoral qualities in this underlined quote. These are the monopoly of the user or abuser. And when I read that, it reminded me of the slogan that guns don't kill people, people kill people. And then you, of course, made that same connection in your book. We're on the same wavelength there. So I was, I was happy with myself. I felt like I, I learned from the teacher. And so I was applying my knowledge. <laughs> it does strike you as, well, that's true. It's everybody's responsibility. But unless you have the knowledge of what's being done, you can't make that 
responsible decision. And here's Arthur Sackler, and he's sitting there in the early 60s saying, hey, if we could find some kind of be happy pills, we could replace antibiotics as Purdue Pharma's top seller. We've seen this in fruition now, as you mentioned earlier, that we've gotten rid of that because you're not going to make much off, off antibiotics. But if you can give people a happy pill, get people taking uppers and downers, and you end up with Elvis Presley, famously, and, and so many people like him. And you noted that in the book, too, his toxicology snapshot of the era's most abused drugs. So we don't have that information to make that informed choice. And I think that's one reason it's good to pick up pharma here. We all know somebody who maybe takes one too many pill or encourage us to take a pill when we maybe don't really need it. I know for myself, if I had gone for my animal science degree on to study veterinary medicine, there's two kinds of doctors, right? There's the to cut is secure, and there's the ones that like to go the prescription pad route. And I probably would have been the latter. I probably would have liked to try what the latest chemicals are and things. I like to think I wouldn't have, have abused them like this if I went into human or animal medicine. But this is something that's being pumped into the bloodstream that's marketed to us that we're not told anything but this will make you happy. And that comes from this Arthur Sackler fellow. He's the one who starts it. And we learned so much about him in the book that I didn't want to let it pass without telling people who he was. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting, that idea of a uh, sort of a be happy pill that he had. And he really gets the idea in some ways from the oral contraceptive. Not that that's the be happy pill, but that's the first lifestyle drug, meaning that until 1960, when the FDA approved the oral contraceptive, the first pill, Every medication that had been approved before that really was for a condition, an illness, a disease, something else. Now you're approving a medication that has to be written by prescription so that women could have control over their reproductive rights and decide if they, when and if they want children. You're not giving it to them because they're ill. And the FDA had some trouble with that, not just the moral objections to not just the religious objections, which there were, but saying, should it, should there be a prescription medication to allow you to make that choice in your life? And they decided yes. And Sackler thought, well, then why do we have to be limited to sick people? Why do we have to be treating diseases and illness? Why can't we come up with a pill, something of a stimulant, a little bit of a stimulant, a little bit of the mild anxiety, some form of a pill, and Valium was the closest to that for him, that you would take, and it would make you feel just a little bit happier. The Alfred E. Newman Mad Magazine version of, I remember looking at him as a kid when I grew up on the magazine with a what me worry attitude. So, you know, what me worry about the rest of the world. And, you know, there have been variations of that over time, but they've all had side effects. So his idea is you'd be able to come up with what he called aspirin for the mind, because aspirin has the, the feeling that it's not really that bad for you. And, you know, aspirins, we know now that it can cause you to have bleeding and it can be bad if you mix it with alcohol. But in general, aspirin tends to be fairly mild and has some good side effects. So he was viewing this aspirin for the mind. And, and that's been a holy grail for the pharmaceutical companies. I think they realize now it's not going to happen, but it's pretty instructive to think that they were looking for a way to sell us medications even though we weren't ill. We haven't even scratched the surface of the good medicine that's here in pharma. You have facts and history from two hard drives and 10 filing cabinets with over a million documents. And I don't want that to off-put readers. If you're never going to read one of those little inserts, pick up pharma instead, I would say, because you'll start to get that idea because here is somebody with his wife, Tricia, who care about people. They care about their readers. They respect them and they want to give them the truth. And that's with a capital T and a capital T again. 
The book has been out for a couple of months, and I wonder, even though you're not able to go out on the road and do those author events, what has been the reaction from readers that you meet maybe in the virtual way? I saw you on an addiction podcast speaking with the host there. What's been the reaction to people, and has it been what you expected when you were writing it? Well, I tell you, it's it's been we never know what to expect. So our problem is we get involved in a subject. We're, we're doing a deep dive on it. We're in the middle of all the documents, the interviews and everything else. I would pull a story out of it. We put it down on uh, into a manuscript. I hit the send button off to my editor. At that moment, I hit the send button. I lose all my confidence in it. Trisha loses all her confidence when it's her <laughs> book. We expect them to get back to us in a month and say, oh, we just hate this. And then they come back and say, oh, we love it. It's great. You know, we can't wait to put it out as a book. And then you put it out as a book and you're ready for the reviews. But you really want to hear what readers say. And the great thing about this has been, Dean, this has really given us the second win, the enthusiasm about it, is the number of readers who have come back and say it's a page turner. Now, that to me is remarkable because it's a 500 page book and it's got a couple of hundred pages of source notes because it's a human story. It's a story about people in the end. It's not a story what they expect. They think, oh, it's going to be about facts and figures and side effects and I'm going to worry about the science of it. But you get into the people who are involved here and they keep popping up, whether it's Estes Kafal for the crusading Tennessee senator in the 60s who's going after the industry, whether it's Gaylord Nelson, a, another senator who's doing it in the 70s, David Kessler, the FDA chief who's trying to regulate tobacco or Harvey Washington Wiley, as you said in the beginning, who's this pioneering head of the Bureau of Chemistry who's coming up with the first food and drug law, the people inside on penicillin and Fleming, the Scottish pharmacologists and others, the Sacklers who are remaking the way that drugs are advertised or trying to get their disinfective on Apollo 11, the first moon flight. We talk about high drug prices of that, and sometimes people don't even think about it. One of the things that even the opioid victims, and when I say opioid victims, either people who were on opioids themselves and then lost their jobs and had to go to rehab, or mothers or fathers who lost a son or a daughter or a brother or people who've lost a spouse to opioids. When I tell them that OxyContin, which is the star, the blockbuster drug, was on average 400% more expensive in the U.S., than in other countries, they're sort of startled by that. So not only did it have a devastating effect in America, but it followed the pattern of all other drugs, which is they are all more expensive here than in any other country, even when it came down to OxyContin. They're priced at a premium in America as opposed to elsewhere. So when people come back and said, we've learned a lot from this, even doctors and pharmacists say, I didn't know this or I didn't know that. But the average person who comes back and says, Boy, I knew I thought I knew about the pharmaceutical industry or I'd read a little bit about it, but this was great and was something that once I got into it, I couldn't put down. That's the greatest thing for us to hear. I feel that when there's a phrase that sounds as wonderful as the executive monkey in a U.S. Army experiment that I had to bring it up because I, I read that phrase and I pictured something very happy with a you know, little monkey in a suit and tie and his coffee and his wife kissing him goodbye from the cage for work. But it's certainly not that. But it illustrates some of the things that have been studied here in pharma and how talk about us all just being experimental animals or us not really thinking or being properly informed. They use these monkeys, they examine them, and then that's how they think of how they're going to market some things to us. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely fascinating that because it turns out to be a footnote in the book. And actually, I think it's critical, though, in, in some ways. So the taxpayers paid for these because it was done by Walter Reed. The uh, U.S. Army did these experiments in the 50s that they did dub the executive monkey. They strapped two monkeys at a time and they did this experiment hundreds of times. 
into a contraption where they couldn't move except for their arms. They were locked in. They'd attach electrodes to their feet and they'd give them an electric zap to their feet. Now, one of the monkeys had a lever next to it. And if it started to operate that lever, learned to do it, it would stop the electric shock to both of them. Monkeys are pretty smart. So it didn't take very long for the monkey next to the lever to learn that if it pushed the lever, that would stop the shocks. When those monkeys died and autopsies were done on them, the so-called executive monkey, that's the one who had to operate the lever, had calcification in the heart and the arteries, had often ulcers, had degenerative types of disease along the organs. The non-executive monkey, the one that didn't have to operate the lever, didn't have those in almost all the autopsies. As a result, Arthur Sackler and the advertising companies for drugs said, ah, you know what? The executive monkey, that's men. This is late 50s, early 60s, at a time when 95% of doctors were men. The executive monkey is the one that has to go out and earn the, the income for the entire family, be the breadwinner, seem strong to society, never show any weakness. And that is the man who develops ulcers as a result of all the hard work and stress. The non-executive monkey, that's women. And we need to treat men with things like Valium and antidepressants or anti-anxiety pills so they can be better at work and not get ulcers. We need to treat women with those because they are neurotic and hysterical and they just need to do better housework. And that sounds incredibly sexist and it is, and that's how they advertise it. And I have ads from the 50s and 60s that show women vacuuming more at home if they're on Adderall, (laughs) that show them 35 years old and single and neurotic because they can't find a man to marry them and they're worried about what their father will think and so they need Valium. And this is all based on the executive monkey experiments. It's remarkable to think how those experiments at Walter Reed were turned into hundreds of millions of dollars in sale in the anti-anxiety and depression markets. Well, your book on Medicine Avenue does what history does best, and that brings suffering of even an animal here, even these animals in that test, brings it forward for us. And that's what the object of history is. For me, I like to push us towards a better future, to avoid some of these mistakes and certainly to learn from them. I want to wrap up today by quoting Kirkus, which calls your book, quote, a shocking, rousing condemnation of an industry clearly in need of better policing. Speaking of policing the industry, what would you like to see us do? What can we do to push reforms in the industry so the future of pharmaceuticals includes more of those medical miracles like a vaccine for coronavirus, for COVID-19, rather than the scourges like the opioid crisis and the other problems we mentioned over the course of our chat? All we can do uh, is is to press our public officials to have some courage to stand up to the pharmaceutical industry occasionally. You know, people will ask me, is this a book that is harder on the Democrats or harder on the Republicans? And I say, I'm an equal opportunity castigator of both parties, both sides of the aisle. At some points in this history of the drug industry in America, you can see that the Democrats gave in and other times the Republicans did. They have both been willing to take a lot of money from big pharma And that lobbying money has made both of them compliant. So in the $8.3 billion you mentioned early in this interview, Dean, that the government rushed forward $3 billion for vaccine research on COVID, there was in the first draft of that an item that said the federal government would have real power to come in if the eventual vaccine was priced too high. They could force the price lower. And in addition, all the research would be shared among all the companies. The pharmaceutical industry got those two out of there. So when the $8.3 billion went out, it didn't have those limitations. Both parties signed off on that. So we really need to push 
the party leaders, and I mean both of them, to say, you know what? You can change things in the future. We are the only country. I said to you before, we're one of two countries that allow direct-to-consumer ads. Well, guess what? We're the only country on the planet that allows drug companies unfettered power for their own pricing. Here, they can set the price for a drug at whatever the market will bear. In every other country, they have to negotiate prices or there are commissions to deal with prices. There are rebates. There are discounts they have to give. Only in America, it's whatever the market bears. I think it's time that we can change some of those things, still get the same medications, the best medications and good research, but not let it be that America is the place where they make their greatest outsized profits at the expense of patients and consumers. Well, Gerald Posner, you have me wanting now to write my senators, write my congressmen. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly felt that after reading Pharma, and granted, after being in the business that I'm in, in the news business, and I certainly have learned to be cynical. And as you were talking there about it being both parties, both parties, both parties are going to play the bad guy, play the good guy, and trade off. They're all on the same medicine, and that medicine's often the donations that they get from the pharmaceutical industry. And they have a right to lobby, certainly. We want them to keep finding the cures for the diseases of tomorrow and the maladies that we have today. But we certainly want to be able to have some regulation on them, have some control, and we don't want to be made sick by the things that they're doing. We don't want more of these uh, Sackler types. We'd rather have more Jonas Salk types, in my opinion. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah. The Philadelphia Inquirer describes you as a reporter in total command of the facts. People have heard that today, and they'll see more of that when they read pharma. Don't be put off by the title pharma. Don't be put off by that word facts or the word learning. I believe I have much more confidence in my listeners than in the old days when senior producers would say, don't talk about educating, don't talk about learning, just do some little fluffy piece like uh, banana and peanut butter sandwiches being Elvis's favorite. I believe we do want to learn. I believe there is an appetite out there and an audience for hard news stories, especially one that's such a page turner as pharma is. You've done a real service for your fellow man and woman in this book, you and Trisha both. I wish you the best of luck with this excellent expose, and I hope listeners will pick a copy of it up for themselves and maybe Pick one up for that friend that you know that's always seeking the next wonder drug. It could literally save their life reading pharma. Dean, thanks so much. It was great to have a conversation with you, as always. Well, the honor and pleasure was all mine to share your great journalism and the work that you both do. So thank you again for thanks, letting Dean. me play a small part in it. No, thank you, Dean. Again, the book is Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the poisoning of America. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Gerald Posner for joining me today and for painting a full picture of the pharmaceutical industry's past to better guide it to a brighter future. Find our guest online at posner.com while following him for more excellent journalism on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or facebook.com slash historyauthor. Plus, remember to catch my interview with Trisha Posner on her book, The Pharmacist of Auschwitz. The Untold Story, as well as Gerald's interview 
That was about his book, God's Bankers, Money and Power at the Vatican, a conversation guest hosted for us by thriller author Tom Grace. Like this episode, all 200 conversations in our archives are available on our YouTube channel, where you can, and I hope you will, subscribe. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a healthy week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.